Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. If something happens to the economy during a core plus value add, it's going to be less impacted. You still might be able to make money. Or if the opportunistic development, you might not be able to sell it. You might sell it for a loss. You might just get your money back. Who knows at that point? Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E. You're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action 
For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hello, best of listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Actively Passive Investing Show. I'm Theo Hicks, as always, with Travis Watts. Travis, how are you doing today? Hey, Theo. Thrilled to be here. Yep. Thanks for joining me again. And Today, we're going to talk about the five different risk profiles in real estate. And we're going to talk about this specifically more towards multifamily because that's what Travis and I are experienced in. But overall, these are going to be the five different types of passive investments that you can do when you're investing in real estate. So these are different types of properties. And with each type of property you're investing in is going to come with some different pros and cons, or I guess benefits and drawbacks. So today we're going to go over each of those. So Travis, do you want to talk about why we're talking about this topic, why this is important to passive investors? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's a lot of talk out there about risk in general, but even more of a niche subject would be this conversation about the different asset types that exist. This could also be related to other asset classes, though we're going to be talking about multifamily. We'll be talking about self-storage or hotels, et cetera, that kind of stuff. So behind me here, I'll kind of get out of the way for those joining us on YouTube. What we're going to cover are the risk profiles of core assets, core plus, value add, opportunistic, and development deals within the multifamily sector. Again, that could relate to other asset types as well. But this is really important because I'm a huge advocate for folks sitting down to determine their investing criteria, their risk tolerance, having that level of self-awareness so that you can make the best decisions for you and the goals that you're looking to accomplish. That's why we're covering this topic. So those are the five categories, Theo. I'll just let you kick it off with core assets. We're just going to walk through what each of these are, what they mean, what risk is associated. Again, those on YouTube can kind of see the answer right there, but we'll go over it verbally as well. So that's why we're covering it. Perfect. So all of these are going to be starting from lowest risk to highest risk. So the core, these are going to be your A-class and A-market properties. And because of their being A-class, right, they're newer, maybe they were recent development deals, or they recently went through a very high-level luxury-style renovation. They're in a primary market like New York City or Los Angeles or a really top tier market. And because of all these reasons, they're going to have very low risk. Everything's done. They're in a market that's established historically, has performed well. I guess maybe take away the last year, a lot of rent reductions in some of these bigger markets. But historically, these are properties that will cash flow, but that's all they'll do. You're not going to go in there and be able to do any sort of forced appreciation. So you're going to get the cash flow that is generated currently when it's taken over. So it's going to be the exact same. It's not going to go up except for through market-driven appreciation. So it's whatever their natural rent growths are. And then because of this, these are typically aren't going to be bought by a passive investor who has a million dollars or 500 grand to invest. These are the types of properties that the big hedge funds will buy because they're not in the game of doing anything to the property. They just want to buy it and then that's it. Just make the cash flow. So they'll buy it, hold it for, say, 10 years and then maintain it and then just sell it. And depending on how well it was maintained, 
might still be a core asset or it might be one of the other categories. And so the next one is going to be core plus. So they're similar to core, maybe in quality of property, but they're not going to be in as great of a market. They might be in a secondary market, not a tertiary market. And they'll still be in a big city, but not as big of a city as a New York city or something like that. And the property could also be maybe a little bit older, but overall, these are just going to be a little bit worse than core from a market perspective and from a quality of asset perspective. Now, travel to go into next on the value add strategy, it is possible to buy a core plus property and add value to it, right? It's not only just going to cash flow based off of how it's currently cash flowing, and then you're not going to be able to do any sort of forced appreciation, but it's not going to be much. It's not going to be much deferred maintenance. Maybe the units are a little bit outdated and maybe some amenities are a little bit outdated, but overall the property is going to be in really good shape. It's going to be fully stabilized, fully achieving market rates, and you can buy it and do nothing or might be do a few minor things and raise the rents a little bit. So these can be in class A or class B markets. Again, they most likely be in secondary markets, but they could also be in primary markets if the property is a little bit more, I don't want to say distressed, but maybe outdated is the right word. So overall, these are going to still be mostly cash flow heavy. You're primarily going to get your money through the cash flow, not appreciation. So it's still going to have a lower risk, although it's going to be a little bit higher than core because of the market and the quality of the asset. So those are the two ones that are almost exclusively driven by cash flow. And the reason why these are lower risk is because when you buy it, you kind of know right away exactly how much it's going to cash flow unless something crazy happens in the market. You don't have to do anything to increase the cash flow and then hope you get that increase, hope you invest the right amount of money. But then the downside is that because you're not forcing appreciation, you're not necessarily going to make as high of returns because the cash flow is not going to gradually increase throughout the hold period. And since the cash flow is going to be correlated to the value of the property at the back end, you're likely just going to make your money back, maybe a little bit of extra profit, but not as much as some of these other strategies that Travis is going to talk about now. Yeah, I think a good way to recap in my perspective, core and core plus is that your appreciation side of the equation is really just the natural market-driven appreciation in that particular area. Many of you know who are listening, real estate is inflationary. So as we get an uptick in inflation, rents typically go up that slight amount as well. So theoretically, you are going to have an equity upside, but it's not from your own doing, like Theo pointed out. You're not going in to do what we're going to talk about now which is value add. And this is my personal favorite, as you can see here on this chart, it's pretty much middle of the road. And that really fits well with my personal risk tolerance. I'm certainly not a gambler or a speculation guy, but also if I can get a higher return by taking a little bit more risk, I'm inclined to do so. So I'm not the guy that's just going to buy a bunch of bonds and CDs and annuities and sit on my 2%. So to that point, I like to use an analogy with value add that this is instilled in me as a person and even from childhood, even if we're not talking about real estate, imagine having a car. And this is the example of you're going to buy a car that needs some work. Maybe some things aren't functioning properly. So maybe you're going to find that off market and get a really good deal on it. You're going to buy it below value because it needs some maintenance. But then if you know how to repair that car or you know who can help you repair that car, once it's repaired and running again properly, you've just increased the value of that asset. Now someone else is willing to come along and pay more for it 
because they don't have to deal with those issues. Same thing with real estate. We're talking about imagined properties, multifamily properties, or any other asset class built in the 1980s, the 1990s, maybe the early 2000s. They're usually stabilized assets. So they already have tenants in there over 85% occupancy and collections for the most part. But the previous owner, for whatever reason, as Theo pointed out, there's different business models out there. A lot of institutional players like to buy these core and core plus assets, but then sit on them for 10 or 15 years till they have issues. The air conditioners are going out and the roof needs repair and the plumbing's starting to get older. And now they're looking to offload them to some other operator who's going to come in with a value add business plan, fix all of these problems, redo the clubhouses, redo the amenity areas, make it a lot nicer and bring it back up to today's standards, including the rent premiums. And that's really what the value add strategy is all about. You're forcing appreciation because you've put in dog parks, barbecue areas, covered carports, package locker systems, upgraded security, better lighting, better landscaping. You've made the community a better place. Therefore, new tenants and existing tenants are willing to pay now slightly higher premium to live there because they get the use of all of those amenities. So that's really what value adds all about. The way I look at it is this, I try to find deals that are kind of 50-50 between cash flow and equity upside. Just simple numbers. If I'm getting an 8% a year cash flow on this value add property, I expect roughly a doubling of that when all is said and done and we go to sell. So hopefully I get more of like a 16% annualized return. Now that's no way, shape or form a guarantee, but if the business plan's executed properly and you find a deal that can fit that criteria, that's very possible to do, at least in my experience. So that's value add. That's my favorite. The last one I'll touch on real quick is opportunistic, which is not far off this chart. If I had made this chart myself, I think I'd put it. Yeah, I'll say the same thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just a tad more risk associated. And opportunistic is where you're buying properties that have pretty major issues. It could come from a multitude of things. Maybe there was a big fire on a property or a flood, or maybe the previous owner only got to 30% occupancy. And for whatever reason, they need to pull out of the deal. So you've got a lot on your hands to handle. You've essentially have to turn something around completely. It might involve new construction, new development, cutting things down to the studs and starting over again. There's often not a lot of cash flow associated with these types of deals in the beginning because of what I mentioned, the low occupancy or no occupancy. It just kind of depends, but they're just riskier for those reasons. It takes a more qualified team who's an expert in turning these things around. So if you're going to be a limited partner like I am, the team is what you really want to be vetting and what their track record is and how many times they've successfully been able to turn these assets around. Another common thing I'm seeing right now because of COVID are hotels that are being converted to affordable housing. Mm. So I would put that in this category. That's an opportunistic play. That's going to take a lot of permitting, possible construction. It's a risk. It may not work out and it may not function the way you want it to function. So it's riskier, but there's usually a higher equity upside on an opportunistic deal when compared to a value add, or especially, obviously, when compared to core and core plus. So that's opportunistic. Let's put it this way. It's the riskiest 
of all the existing product out there. So excluding new development, which they all let you talk about development. Yeah, I'd wonder if you talk to someone who is a developer, if they wouldn't put development as the riskiest. I would imagine that maybe someone might say that opportunistic is a little bit riskier. So these two might be interchangeable, but I think that what we have it is accurate because of the fact that the property doesn't exist. So when you're comparing it to opportunistic, the property itself is actually there already. So the biggest problem with development that I think is that it's kind of like you buy it and then there's this land, there's no property. You hope that the market stays the same or gets better over the two year, three year, however long it takes to develop the property and that you can sell it. Because on the back end, your buyer is going to be one of these core buyers. You're making it an A property. So the hope is that someone buys it on the back end. And for the past, say, 10 years leading up to 2020, I'm sure that was a case. Whereas what happens if a recession hits in the middle of your business plan? With any of these other ones, at least a property is there and you do something with it. And you have historical information on how this property has performed. So say, okay, well, worst case scenario, I could just maybe use this property that's in really bad shape and just rent it out. Maybe I'll lose a little bit of money, but at least I'll be generating some cash flow, right? I'll be able to pay back the covered debt service at the very least. Whereas with development, it's very risky because there's not a property. There's no property that exists or the property does exist. It's something that needs to be knocked down. So this is a 100% forced appreciation play. There's really no cash flow. And then depending on the strategy, there might not ever be any cash flow, right? The plan might just be to develop it and then stabilize it, then sell it. And then you get paid once it gets hopefully sold. And so as I kind of mentioned, people do development and they make a lot of money off doing development because it does, as you can see in the graph, have the highest return potential, equity upside play, because you're kind of building it from scratch. But I definitely understand why it's on the top of this list, because there's nothing there. <laughs> nothing exists on the vacant land. And sure, there's something I'm sure you could do with the vacant land. But the biggest risk here is for all of these, what happens? The way I kind of look at this is like, okay, well, let's say the exact same experience level GP was in charge of all of these deals. Then really at that point, the major risk point is going to be the market. So if something happens to the market, which one of these are the most exposed and core, core plus value at opportunistic development in that order, the exposure increases. Because at the end of the day, if I'm going to invest in a core deal and the GP doesn't know what they're doing, yeah, it's going to be riskier than if I invest with a 30-year developer veteran. So assuming that you're investing with a good GP in a good market, then the risk factor is going to be the overall economy. And if something happens to the economy during a core plus value add, it's going to be less impacted. You still might be able to make money. Or with opportunistic development, you might not be able to sell it. You might sell it for a loss. You might just get your money back. Who knows at that point? I've seen this stuff play out, Theo, firsthand. Good intentions. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, the way I look at development is the key word is speculation. And if that matches your risk tolerance, like a lot of people, they pick growth stocks, penny stocks, this kind of stuff, day trading. This is a lot of speculation that's, to your point, market dependent. It's what the stock market overall is going to be doing. And that's kind of out of your control. But there are elements that you can do. But you're speculating on what the future price is going to be. You're speculating on future cap rates. You're speculating on future interest rates, speculating on the cost of lumber and materials and labor and the ability to get permits and so many things all your contractors and team and renders. It's just a lot of speculation. But to your point, you should be rewarded for that. So as a limited partner, if you're ever looking at one of these business models and you're seeing the risk is up here at the top, 
the projections better be a lot higher than something here in the middle because you're taking a lot more risk to get there. If it's the difference between a 12% return and a 10, there's no way, man. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, you know? <laughs> but so it better be like a 25% return versus a 10 or something because you're taking that much more risk. So mm-hmm. those are my thoughts on development. Yeah, so to wrap up, my final thoughts on this, and it's kind of what you said, but maybe saying it in a little different way is that when you kind of go up, starting from core to core plus to value-add opportunity to development, as you go up each step in the risk profile, the GPs are making more and more assumptions. And so for core, you're buying it and you're still going to have some assumptions, but you know what the cash flow is going to be, you know what the expenses are going to be. And then if something happens to the market, it's going to impact all of these things more or less equally. And then core plus, the more assumptions, you might have to do a little bit of work to it, value add even more assumptions, opportunistic, even more assumptions in development. It's really all assumptions at that point. So the more assumptions the GPs need to make, that's kind of correlated to the more risk because you want more facts. The more facts, the less risk, basically. So those are kind of my final thoughts on that. Yeah, 100%. And I guess just my conclusion to all this is, like I said in the beginning, big advocate for sitting down with yourself, with your partner, with your team, whatever, and figuring out first, I always start with my goal. So I don't know. Let me give you two quick examples. So if someone has a goal of, I want to create $10,000 a month and cash flow so that I can leave my corporate job. Well, now you need to start finding deals that are going to help you accomplish that goal. For example, if you're looking for cash flow, you're going to be looking at core, core plus, value add more than likely, right? You're probably not going to be doing opportunistic or development in that situation. And then you needed to figure out your risk tolerance and what sits well with you. Conversely, you say, hey, I'm 35 years old. I don't plan on retiring till I'm 65. I'm going to be using my IRA money and I could care less about cash flow and distribution. So I might as well take some more risk because I'm younger, do a couple of development deals, hopefully get a higher return and start building up that nest egg with a goal of having 3 million bucks by the time you retire or something like that. So everyone's going to be different. This isn't an episode to bash one or the other. I just shared with you my risk tolerance and what sits well with that. But really, it's about you and your goals and what's going to work best for you. Yes, yeah, it's a great point. None of these are absolutely universally better than the other one. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. So those are the five real estate risk profiles. Just to say them one more time, core, core plus, value add, opportunistic, and development. So Travis, as always... Thank you for joining us today. Best ever listeners. Thank you for listening. Have a best ever day and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Theo. Thanks, everybody. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Best Ever Conference is almost here starting February 18th. We have over 30 of the best ever speakers in commercial real estate. When you sign up, you are placed in a virtual mini mastermind group to network and gain connections from start to finish. And if you're looking to elevate your investing game, this is the place to be. Visit BEC2021.com and use the code INVEST15 to get 15% off.